If it involves a fluid system, if it involves principles of flow and thermodynamics, if, if it's in that category of dynamical problems, I feel like I have a starting point for how to think about it. So that's what I mean by um, I'm more interested in new problems that I find interesting than any specific one that I'm just going to only focus on. But there's still a, a boundary to it because if you take me out, if you take any of us out of our sort of comfort zone, if it's too far away, I, I don't know the language, I don't know the background, I don't know the mathematics, I don't know the physics. So there is a boundary to it, but I, but I think I wander a bit more intellectually than when I first started. Welcome to Navigating Nano Podcast, where we explore the multidisciplinary world of nanotechnology with distinguished professors and researchers. Join us as we sit down and talk about their cutting-edge research, career paths, and expert opinions on the expanding world of nanotechnology. This week, we sit down with Dr. Howard Stone, Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Princeton University. He has special interest in fluid dynamics, especially as they arise in research and applications at the interface of engineering, chemistry, physics, and biology. In this episode, we talk about, it seems like everyone wants to solve a specific problem, but what if we want to solve a bunch of them in the interdisciplinary suppleness that goes into it? Also, seeing that as Women's History Month, what ways can we enable women in STEM and academia? Join us as we navigate Nano. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to Navigating Nano. And today we are hosting Dr. Howard Stone, a professor of chemical engineering in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, Princeton University. Welcome, Dr. Howard. Uh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. So just feel comfortable. We're just going to have a natural conversation more on what it means to be in your field and the research that you do in academia and a few things here and there that will be random, but just feel comfortable. So to start us off, Dr. Howard, could you kindly tell us who you are, what you do, and if there's anything additional that you might want to add that is you know, interesting about you? So my name is Howard Stone. I'm a, a professor at Princeton. I, I'm in the mechanical and aerospace engineering department, and I come from a background in training in chemical engineering. I, I like to study uh, fluid systems, systems that involve flow, systems that involve uh, physics and engineering principles of so-called out-of-equilibrium systems. Um, over the years, I've discovered I like problem solving more than I like any specific problem. I enjoy collaborating with people. I think the feature that I enjoy the most still is learning and I still enjoy uh, the teaching I do. Um, I have a wonderful research group. I have wonderful collaborators. Uh, Where possible, I like to engage with people in industry because they often expose you to new questions and ask you to think about things you haven't thought about. Um, what else? 
you know, I like sports, and I love to read. And you love to read. Great. Yeah. I think being an academic, it comes to us naturally. You need to read to grow the knowledge so that you can actually go and be curious about the problems that you want to solve. Are you a parent? Do you have pets? Aha. Uh-huh. So I'm, a, uh, I'm married to a wonderful woman named Valerie. We have two children. Uh, the oldest is, uh, they're both girls. The oldest is named Taylor. She's a, currently a graduate student in Boston. Uh, our youngest is named Blaze, and she's a freshman in college. Uh, and we have a dog. We have a dog and three cats. My wife and children like cats. I'm I'm not such a big fan of cats. I like dogs, and we have a wonderful dog named Eiffel, as in the Tower. Oh, interesting! Yeah. And thank you for mentioning that you're parents to girls, and I think that will just. I'll pick up from there. You being a dad to two girls and the you know this current world that we're living in, and this month is special because we get to celebrate women, Women History Month. I think it's called Women History Month, and you being a dad to two girls. I don't know what what, what do they do? Are they in STEM fields? Uh, so our our oldest daughter Taylor, when she went to college, which was at Lafayette College, which turned out to be a wonderful place for her to go to school, yeah. um, she discovered she loved psychology, and she's interested in developmental psychology, um, how young children learn to think, and so she started a PhD program in that area. So I guess that's a STEM-related field, yes. uh, and. So that's our oldest, and our youngest is just a freshman, and she's thinking about uh, molecular biology, which is a STEM field. Yes, that that is perfect. And you, being a dad to girls, you have an amazing wife, as you have said. How do you encourage them to be involved in the science? Well, they might they they might not necessarily agree with that. I'm the best dad in the world, but um, uh, I think let's see how to say this. Um, I have Im- immigrant parents, mm-hmm. and I think I was raised, but you know, by loving parents, but in an environment that might have um, had a bit more pressure about the need to succeed in education or school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, I'm trying to choose my words a little carefully, that when my children were growing up, I as a father and a parent was trying to understand how best to interact with them as they were learning in school. And my wife at some point, I think, gave me very good advice, which was something like, leave them alone and they'll figure out their own path. And I think that uh, lowered everybody's stress. And uh, so I, I don't believe I put lots of pressure on them to uh, do certain things. I think they observed the way we approach things. Um, It is true that both my children, when they were younger, we had in an uh, after-school math program. There are different ones around. We used one called Kumon. Uh, I I don't know if it helped or not. I don't think it hurt. Um, And then once a year, they would see me do a science lecture for children at the Christmas season. Uh, but I don't think I, I don't think my wife and I, I don't think we put 
undue pressure on them, and they might have felt differently. So I'm not so I'm not quite sure how to answer, but I, I think we did try to be a little hands off and let them choose their own paths forward. Um, I think that's fair. I guess being a parent, all you need to do is guide. You cannot impose. You can guide them, direct them in the right direction, give them principles so that they can be willing enough to choose whichever field they want to go into. So that was on a very personal note. Today we had the privilege of listening to your lecture on fluid mechanics. And you had very interesting, fascinating stories about fluid mechanics. And there's one that I'm really curious to know. Could you tell us the story about whiskey? Uh, so I can just tell you what I learned was uh, some years ago, I don't know if it was six or seven years ago, five or six years ago, I received an email from uh, a man named Ernie Button. I, uh, Ernie, I think during the day, uh, is involved with nursing at a hospital in Arizona, but at night uh, and on his weekends, he's a photographer, and he tended to take photographs of uh, the dry deposits after whiskey dries, say, you know, after some dinner party when you look at your glasses, and they make very beautiful patterns. And so apparently he had contacted a number of people asking, why do you get these patterns? We could look some up on the web if you wanted. And uh, he didn't, I don't think, get an, he didn't get an answer, but someone said he should write me. I tend to be a person who tends to answer email. So I got this email. It had pictures in it that looked interesting. They look like dried deposits, which if you study colloid science problems, you might have seen uh, what are sometimes called coffee rings. There's a phenomenon called a coffee ring effect. It had some of these features. And uh, I think what I mentioned to someone earlier today is, since I wasn't quite sure what to do, uh, and um, I didn't know what the next step was, I uh, went to a liquor store nearby. There happens to be one across the street from my lab. Mm -hmm. I bought a small bottle of whiskey, you know, sort of like the size you get on an airplane if you like that kind of thing. I left it on the coffee table, and I mentioned to my group, when you get a little free time, put a little on a microscope slide and film it as it dries under a microscope. And over a period of a few years, different members of my group made different observations. We tried to make model systems that were mixtures of alcohol and water. We tried to understand what are the deposits that give rise to the whiskey. We tried to read about the whiskey making process to understand, you know, are there polymers involved? Are there particulates involved? And over a, a few years, we could even design a model system that seemed to have the same patterns when it dried as a, a typical whiskey. And then we ended up writing a research paper about about it, motivated not so much by whiskey, but by coating. Oh. Co coating, how you coat surfaces. We. Anyways. Okay, so that makes me curious as well. Like, does it depend on the composition of the whiskey? Yeah, so whiskey is some alcohol and water, and the more, the low, um, the higher vapor pressure liquid disappears first, so that's the alcohol. And as I mentioned today, and my lecture in a few places, there's this property of surface tension. And so when you have these binary liquids, these liquids containing, containing two components, they typically evaporate fastest at the edge of the pool of liquid. There's a reason why they typically, eva typically eva eva evaporate faster at the edge. And so that 
spatial variation leads to convection in, uh, in the liquid in the in the little droplet, and that fluid flow pattern then affects uh, some of what then happens inside the material because the material also contains a small amount of a polymer and some colloidal particles that are just part of the whiskey manufacturing process. So there's a fluid flow effect, there's sort of a polymer adsorption effect, and all of those contribute to the final thing you see. Okay. So, and you say that you started this six years ago. Uh, it was something like that. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting that the inspiration came from, you know, somebody. Yeah, no, the the interesting thing was this this man, Ernie Button, was very observant, and he found the patterns interesting, and then he found a few, by looking on the web, I think, a few scientists who study some of these deposits that happen in different coding operations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find some questions like that interesting. It, you know, it was the kind of thing we did a little on the side, but it, it was informed by the way we approach problems, and it got us thinking about, you know, in this field, there's this question that when you evaporate a liquid, you often get a ring that's called the coffee stain deposit. So you're allowed to ask a question, can you change the liquid so that you don't have a ring, but you have a uniform deposit? You need a uniform deposit if you have certain kinds of inks that you're trying to inkjet print. And so we discovered maybe that's too strong a word, we understood some of the features you have to think about if you don't want a ring, but instead want a uniform deposit. Mm-hmm. And so the lead author on this, Hyung Soo Kim, he's now a professor in Korea, also then did other work trying to think about how do you um, print materials so that they have more uniform features. And you always typically start with this binary system, Uh, And when one component evaporates, you're often getting convection patterns that are serving to mix things up. So that's good for uniformity, in in fact. Anyway, so there were uh, uh, real reasons that it's valuable to think about these things. And I like puzzles, and my group sort of enjoyed the puzzle, and it was fun to read something a little different. Yeah. And how long have you been working on fluid mechanics? My PhD was in the area of fluid mechanics. So when I did my PhD long time ago, uh, uh, the training I received was in the area of fluid mechanics and a little bit of applied mathematics. And uh, it's fair to say that um, it's some a topic I always enjoyed. But if you asked me what were the two lowest grades I got in graduate school, the two lowest grades I got, which were both in the B range, one is in fluid mechanics, where now I'm supposed to have some expertise, and the other in is in applied mathematics, and I'm supposed to have some expertise there. And so my, for me, the story is find something you really enjoy. We all have different growth curves. Um, We all enjoy asking questions in different ways. We all can learn from each other and uh, use that as a step forward. And don't worry so much about the grade so long as you enjoy what you're learning and so long as you're able to, you know, grow. Exactly. Yeah. So your inspiration is basically your curiosity. I think that's true. I will say that when I was uh, a little younger in my research career, I was uh, maybe more of my personality showed up in certain ways. I would worry sometimes that I didn't know answers, and that would make me sort of nervous because I thought, you know, I'm supposed to know how to answer certain things. And one of my colleagues one day said to me, he said, you know, Howard, that's the difference between you and I. You're, you're worried that you don't know the answer, and I'm comfortable with the fact that I don't, but I can learn. And that helped me, I think, be a little bit more uncomfortable with the idea of not knowing.
Something you said that was really like caught my attention was you're not really interested in specific things. You're more interested in problem solving. So I was like, okay, well, if you're just interested in problem solving and you're not interested in specific things, does that mean you're just like, does it, do you feel like ever you stretched out kind of wide or you kind of like pick what problems yeah. you want to solve? It's a really observant remark. I, I, I say it sort of loosely in the sense that you know, there are a lot of wonderful, hardworking, smart people who who work on a relatively focused problem. They have really great expertise in that problem. Of course, I work on a something like that. But for me, I feel like there's no specific question in my field that is the only thing I want to study. On the other hand, on the other hand, I don't I'm not capable of learning everything, but if it involves a fluid system, if it involves principles of flow and thermodynamics, if it's in that category of dynamical problems, I feel like I have a starting point for how to think about it. So that's what I mean by um, I'm more interested in new problems that I find interesting than any specific one that I'm just going to only focus on. But there's still a, a boundary to it because if you take me out, if you take any of us out of our sort of comfort zone, if it's too far away, I, I don't know the language, I don't know the background, I don't know the mathematics, I don't know the physics. So there is a boundary to it, but I, but I think I wander a bit more intellectually than when I first started. And, and part of that, I think, is I, and I've learned this from friends, actually. I, I sort of absor- uh, observe them, ask questions, and, it, and I, I think I learned from that. I could tell you their, all their names because they were, I think I absorbed by osmosis a, a, a pr- approaches and philosophies and styles but uh, I do like problems so long as they're within this range of you know dynamics that I feel comfortable with if that helps a little yes Um, do you ever um, say like you find this so you have you have a range right what if you find something that's like yeah, it's not your range, but just like right there. Do you ever like take it? You know what I'm saying? Like here's your range, right? And you understand this is your range. And then you see something that's like... A little further away. A little further away. Yeah. So lots of what you'll find if you uh, stay in research, for at least in my experience, many problems that you'll find to be most interesting happen at, happen at a boundary with another discipline because you work with someone from that discipline. And one of the harder things, I think, in those interactions is starting because you both often talk different languages. Um, but I think those problems often push you over the edge. Mm-hmm. Be- and, and you have to learn some of the new language and translate it into sort of things that you understand. And that broadens your perspective on problems. You learn, start, start to learn a new field. They learn some of your way of thinking. Probably neither of you ever become... Special, as specialists as each of the other, but you all push yourself beyond that boundary. And because you're working at sort of an intellectual boundary, often those are thing, places where you discover something new. And that's interesting to mention that when you interact with other people in other fields, that means you're integrating the fluid mechanics into other fields. That grows your perspective on how you see biology, you see... Yeah chemistry and all that. Now, for me, the question is, how do you recruit students into your lab, considering that 
you believe in observation, philosophical um, views, and how you, you're very observant, you use your eyes to actually do the research that you do. When it comes to recruiting graduate students, how do you go about that? What do you consider in the student? So every university and every department has different processes for graduate admissions. Yeah. So in, in my department, uh, we only get you know N slots where N is some integer like 40 or something, and it's divided among the 25 faculty that are in five different areas. So the area I work in, there are four or five professors, and we get you know eight or so slots. And so the question is, um, it's not like I get to choose you know, just anything. We make a sub, uh, a choice among students that we think will be the best fit for our programs. And a few of them we, you know, are hoping are going to fit different areas within what, what we might call fluid mechanics or transport phenomena. In my case, you know, what am I looking for? I like students that have uh, quantitative skills. Why? Because experimental work, you have to be quantitative. Numerical work, you have to be quantitative. Even now, if you're an experimentalist, you have to do image processing to learn things. So, you know, quantitative skills, I think, are important. Mm -hmm. um, I like students that are a little bit more, that, that give me the sense that they're creative. Um, I know I've had several examples over the years where I remember meeting a student at a conference. They were going to apply to graduate school, and they were talking to me, and I was sort of struck by the creativity. I wasn't so worried about the specific problem they were worry, working on. They were working on some problem because some professor or researcher gave them a question, but I was sort of struck by the way they described the work they were doing. Because um, I think creativity, I think you can learn it. I think you can learn by practicing and working with people. But I think those are two skills, two, two features that I really like. I don't there are lots of things that you can learn in graduate school. You know, when you start your thesis, you don't have to know all the answers. When you defend your project, you don't have to have written your thesis, but you need a few skills that make it clear you have a path forward. And I think some of those paths are understanding fundamentals reasonably well, yeah. and and caring about fundamentals really that you you find that interesting. Some quantitative skills so you can organize thinking, and and I think creativity is this extra feature that lets you see things and invent things and create things, whether it's experimental or otherwise, that maybe your colleagues don't see. Uh, I think that that applies to so many we've had speakers here who say, you know, when you quantify skill, uh, sorry, creativity and knowledge, understanding the fundamentals of the field that you're involved in, some would go for like 70% knowledge some would go for 50-50. And for you, what will that be, a balance? Um, uh, so what are the, am I doing two or three? Creativity and knowledge, the fundamental knowledge. Maybe by knowledge, I, I sort of mean just a basic appreciation for fundamentals in our field yes. that we come through in undergraduate education. Maybe. 65, 70% and 30% creativity. Okay, great. I, I guess that applies on the bracket so, of many of Yeah, I, and I can say that um, when I was feel like I came out of graduate school, I don't think I was creative at all. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know really how to be creative. I, 
I was okay at problem solving. I, you know, my advisor, who's a wonderful man, Gary Leal, sort of had suggested research questions, which I was learning about. And I, I think I started to appreciate creativity much more when I was trying to become a young professor. I was going to conferences and meeting people, and a few of them stood out to me because of the sort of, I thought, the cleverness with which they asked questions that seemed to bring new insight, the simplicity sometimes of the question that they asked because it had sort of a deep understanding, but it was simple to state and think about. Uh, and I think it was that, it, it, it was simple, to, in quotes, um, that gave it a sense of beauty and understanding, whereas sometimes people work on things that are so complicated, it's just hard to see the forest from the trees. And here, I was struck by a number of people who I thought were asking questions that helped me learn. And I sort of, I think I tried to mimic it in a certain way, and that helped me learn. And I think it also helped me become more creative. Yeah, I, I, I'm guessing the same, like creativity is something that we have to grow into over time, like you're trying to imply. And for that, as PhD students, we're always learning new skills, but at the same time, the more you, you practice the work that you do in the lab, the experiments that we do, when it comes to optimization and troubleshooting the experiments that we do, it needs you to be creative and trying to identify what the problem is. I'll open the floor to our audience. Oh, yeah. DNA polygraph for drug delivery. So, uh, according to your presentations, and actually I was in Zooms, but in some parts I missed it because you were away from microphone, so I got some part. And I really love the way it kind of, you know, works uh, interdisciplinary with the linking within different kind of stuff. So my question is, I try to internalize this structure inside of the cells and track it on the membrane, on the cell membrane. So because my structures is like a 100 nanometer and they can enter the cells through scavenger receptors because it's a big size, like a little bit big size. So I'm just wondering that, do you have any suggestions just, you know, to have any simulations of our these structures before going to, to the lab and starting experiments? that if this structure is inside of the cells or not, um, can be helpful, you know? What do you want to simulate? Oh, what, to simulate about the, you know, because because for DNA origami internalizations, the shape, the size, and the cell lines that we select, all of them can affect this uh, in, inter internalizations. So, Internalization, the spirit of like endocytosis. Yeah, endocytosis, yeah. Well, I, one, I don't work in the field, so you might have to edit this out of the interview. But it seems to me that they're very detailed questions, which would depend on the chemical structure of every subunit along this DNA origami structure if it has to get internalized. And I can imagine, because it's molecular biology, that perhaps a few very specific structures are very important. More crudely, if I just had like a little 
nanometer size sphere of a certain with certain surface properties, whether they're hydrophobic or hydrophilic, that might also get internalized. But they're two very different views. One is just, I just need the mean surface properties, and the other is I'm controlled by some very specific molecular scale events, and I don't know if either or both are, or neither are relevant to designing this structure so it will be internalized. But I, yeah, I, but, mm-hmm. oh, because I read some papers and they mentions that the road shape can enter the cells easily in comparisons to like a three D structures in this way. Yeah, and uh, just I yeah. yeah. So I think that's a great question. But you you know you're talking about like rod like shapes that sometimes people might say might be more or less easily internalized. I have a feeling you you have to put that in a table, and I'd add a couple columns to the table, like what was the cell line, what was the surface of the cell, what was the chemistry of the environment, because maybe that paper you read, maybe that's only specific to a some system. Maybe it's not a generic rule. I don't know what the answer to that is, but sometimes I worry that some of these biological systems, there are other physical chemistry features that are important to know, and those might be cell cell line specific. Um, yeah, and even the, in another project, I worked with carbon dust, like a nano size uh, specific, and it had the zeta potentials of these uh, particles is negative, like a negative two, and you know by confocal microscopy and even flow cytometry, both of them, I try to understand that if they enter the cell or not. But because of the super small size, you know, I can't just make them to stay inside of the cell. So again, I'm going to use some words I don't completely understand, but sometimes what the molecular biologist does to learn about something is they design a reporter that turns on when something happens. So maybe there's some way that some feature in the cell recognizes, what is it, the carbon dust or whatever you have, and then it turns on some reporter, and then you have a, an external signature that something happened. How to do that, I have no idea. Oh, because carbon dust has intrinsic fluorescence. So, so through that ones that I track them, but I'm just wondering that how I can simulate them, you know? And simulate with a computer. computer. Yeah, with the computer. Well, I think then it depends a little what question you're asking. If it's, if they're individual objects that are small and undergo so-called Brownian motion, then there's numerical tools that are called Brownian dynamics, which are, I think, open source methods for allowing you to track movement of, of objects undergoing Brownian motion. And if they're not spherical, but they're, you know, elliptical, uh, people simulate that by gluing spheres together. So there are methods, partly open source, I think, that if it's molecular-like things or Brownian-like things, there might be tools that'll answer some questions. They might, if the, if your problem is, has other physical chemistry features, maybe the tools aren't so good, I don't know. But the best thing is talk to someone interested in simulations because some of them are looking for a question and you could form a nice collaboration because maybe you'll mention a question to them that they've never thought about.
almost to the point, but just um, I was curious if you've done food mechanics in microfluidics. Do you do such kind of work? Yeah, so my uh, training is in uh, what's called low Reynolds number flows, which are small, generally principles for so-called smaller scale flows. But originally, probably in the mid to late 1990s, I started to work on problems inspired by microfluidics. So I, I've written a couple of review articles, and uh, a few people in my research group work on such problems. I've tended to um, not move away from them, but I think there are many other people with kind of bigger groups and more focus on technology than myself. So I've, I've tried to find problems a little bit more in this area where I feel like I can contribute to but not necessarily compete. But yeah, I have a background in microfluidics, and I'm aware of some of the science and engineering principles. Okay. So when it comes to biological systems, when you're studying biological systems in microfluidics, how do you scale down the fluid aspect of it to study biological systems in terms of experimental sector to mimic the complex but body I, system? So if I understand the question, it's, you know, what do you have to think about for the scale? I think the n nice thing about microfluidics that made it very powerful for many people is the standard designs when they were introduced were at the scales of 10 to hundreds of microns. Mm -hmm. And the standard material as introduced and maybe popularized by George Whitesides and colleagues at Harvard mm -hmm. was that that was the scale of the cell. You didn't have to scale down. It, just by making the microfluidic device, mm -hmm. you were often at the scale of the cell. And so you were, in some sense, um, looking at the geometry, maybe not the geometries, but the scale that is the scale of many mammalian cells. Mm -hmm. You know, bacterial cells are a micron. So a few bacterial cells uh, in a microfluidic channel looks like, you know, a few little objects scattered around a 100 micron yeah. square surface. A red blood cell is a two by eight micron disc-shaped objects moving in a small device. So some of the geometries are, of, of microfluidics are naturally suited to some of these biological questions. Yeah, but, but uh, like from your perspective, have you been able to design like a fluidic, microfluidic system to study biological systems? Platforms to study biological systems? Well, we've done some work often with people in molecular biology trying to design experiments that mimic some features of molecular yeah. biology. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure anyone would give me necessarily credit for designing somehow a platform, okay. but it is true that over the years we've worked on different problems where we've used microfluidic tools to try to answer some questions that come up mm -hmm. at the boundaries of mechanics and molecular biology. Okay. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. So this is definitely not your comfort zone, but definitely what you're doing is is amazing. Fluid mechanics. He works on microfluidics, and I guess that is something that you also need to understand very well. Lastly, how do you? Your work is more on observation and curiosity. Do you have your work translated, like this physics phenomenon? translated maybe into applications in any way? Um, well, I like to work with people in industry. Uh, in fact, some of our early work in microfluidics 
in this area, so-called droplet microfluidics, um, where we were probably one of the early groups trying to work in this area, was motivated by people in industry. It was actually people at Unilever who conceived that this could be an important platform. And I've always enjoyed working with people in industry because I think they have very creative questions to ask. We had uh, one startup company a year ago uh, in the area of um, colloid science and what's called electrokinetics. And one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Maxime Mesheritcher, has uh, developed a technology around sprays and uh, aerosols that we're trying to advance both the science and the engineering, and he is starting a small company because he has a, a unique technology that we think might be useful in a, in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. So these these are, you know, wonderful things to do. I don't feel like I'm the most, uh, I don't have the, the strongest entrepreneurial streak mm -hmm. as some of my colleagues. Uh, I like it. Uh, it makes me a little nervous because I'm not exactly sure always how to advance to the next steps, but it's it's fun to work on, and so we have had a couple attempts at this, and it's quite exciting. That's interesting. Even personally, I don't have, I cannot start, not that I cannot, I'm just afraid that I cannot start a business and maintain it long term. Well, and don't be afraid, because my sense is you can put, you can do anything you set your mind to. That's exactly. the beautiful thing about human nature. Yes. Now, my last question. You being a professor in this field of fluid mechanics, what have been your takeaways that you can give to graduate students to motivate them to keep pushing and finish graduate school and you know progress into their careers? Well, I'm not sure I have a good answer, but I'm going to say one thing that um, I think is reflective of the people in the room, mm -hmm. and it's something that I in my own way, I feel I stumbled on, uh, first got a hint of in graduate school and then as a young professor and I've carried with it my career and that is uh, a career in research, whether it's in academics or in industry or a national lab, for example, uh, will lead you to uh, forming relationships with people, often people that you'll see just a few times a year and they'll become your best friends mm -hmm. because of intellectual ideas. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter where they're from. And so when I look in this room, I see people from all over the world. You said you were from India and you're from Iran and my parents are immigrants from Europe and a couple Americans, I guess, maybe. And uh, the thing for me that I've always found remarkable about research that no one ever tells you about when you start is that you uh, form an a bond with people through intellectual ideas yeah. and I just think it's the most beautiful thing in the world and I wish more people appreciated it um, and so for me I've really really enjoyed it I've met people uh, that I love to see even if I only get to see them once or twice a year or now by zoom sometimes you know I have a zoom coffee with someone in another part of the world but I think it's a really wonderful thing that there's this intellectual bond you form and it and it can vary over the years as your intellectual interests change or your the problems you're trying to work on change. But that's something I really like, and I often try to share that with my group. Mm -hmm. uh, many of our groups come, have people that come from all over the U.S. and all over the world. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice thing I'd like to share. And I like to share the beauty of uh, learning, beauty of understanding. 
And the beauty of surprises when you're learning. You know, sometimes you learn something and you thought, who would have thought that? I mean, how does that happen? That's Those are the wonderful moments. I think research, uh, research is creativity, like you said, observation and curiosity. We are here because we are curious about. Can I, can I then add one yes, for you? Please. So, uh, do you know, though, because this is the uh, nano center on for engineering and science, right? Yeah. So do you know the origin of the word engineer? Or can you give me that? Well, it's it's spelled E N G I N, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if you fee- if you speak French or Spanish, a Latin language, engineer begins with an I, ingenieur. I N G E N. So in English, we tend to associate engineers with mechanical things or mm-hmm. engines. Yes. But the origin of the word is from ingenuity, to give birth to ideas. Um, in a, We might not always educate that way, but in a certain sense, I have to be a little careful. It's the only part of a university mm. that has its origin in creativity. And I think that's a beautiful message in a world that needs, you know, creativity and ideas, and engineers, I think, have a, a wonderful place to play in it, uh, and and contribute to it. So, uh, not so many people know that. I can tell you the book I learned it from, and the page number where I learned it from, but uh, and the author of the book uh, that I read to learn from. But it, that when I stumbled on that as a young professor, I thought, well, that's really beautiful. I'd I'd like to learn more about this creativity. Disingenuity. I think that gives us more confidence to continue being creative in the ingenuity of engineering. So, yeah. thank you so much, Dr. Howard. Okay. And thank you for the chance to participate. This was really a lot of fun. Thank you. Uh, this has been Navigating Nano with Dr. Dr. Howard Stone. And I've been your host, Faith Zablan. Thank Great. you very much. Super. If it involves a fluid system, if it involves principles of flow and thermodynamics, if, if it's in that category of dynamical problems, I feel like I have a starting point for how to think about it. So that's what I mean by um, I'm more interested in new problems that I find interesting than any specific one that I'm just going to only focus on. Yeah. But there's still a, a boundary to it because if you take me out 
if you take any of us out of our sort of comfort zone, if it's too far away, I, I don't know the language, I don't know the background, I don't know the mathematics, I don't know the physics. So there is a boundary to it, but I, but I think I wander a bit more intellectually than when I first started.